Hi everyone, it's Joakim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this episode, I talk with Jere Partanen and Erik Larsen from Sisu Game Ventures, an early stage gaming venture fund. Both Jere and Erik are newcomers to venture capital investing, although both have a background from working with gaming startups. In this discussion, we talk about the competitiveness of early stage game investing, how a fund like Sisu can win deals, and how the partners at Sisu are helping the founders that they've invested in. All right, we're live. Hi, Ere. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Yeah, likewise. This is really interesting to talk with you guys. The similar folks who are spending time at the early stage with game startups, it's always fun. Fun to sort of talk about stuff and get the feel of how you feel about the, the current ways of the industry. So hopefully this will be a, a fruitful discussion. But can you both introduce yourself shortly and how you got into investing in games? So let's start with Eric. Sure. I started my first company over 30 years ago now and with Funcom, just basically straight out of school. And ever since, I've been either running studios, fixing broken studios, or starting new ones since that time. Funcom was my first company, then Looking Glass Studios in the US, worked at uh, a couple of larger companies, Atari and EA, just to sort of get to understand what it what not to do as an entrepreneur. You know, very large companies, very large teams, a lot of wasted resources. Came back to Europe, worked with Asamli, one of his, uh, one of the co-founders of Sisu, on one of his startups. And then went to Epic, worked at Epic's game studio in Poland, People Can Fly, where we were doing Bulletstorm, which was a super fun game to work on. Then joined Disney's mobile operations in Europe as the head of studio in Prague, and then came out to 2K Czech. Take Two had a studio in, in the Czech Republic. And they were struggling with Mafia 3, so I helped them ship that game. But ultimately... I decided to start helping small up and coming studios to launch and get their, get their business right from the beginning. A clear vision of uh, what their company culture should be like, uh, very, very clear on what kind of games they wanted to make and then empowering the team to deliver against those uh, clear goals. So I helped launch four companies where Sisu was first money in in two of those. I became an LP in Sisu and I started hanging around Paul and Samuel a lot. And they asked me to go and spend some time with some of the portfolio companies that were struggling because they kind of knew my reputation as someone who can, when things go sideways, which it often does, right, in game development, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's super fun, but it's also difficult. So when they uh, asked me if I wanted to join Sisu, it was a perfect fit for me because not only do I get to uh, do what I love to do, which is help founders sort of get their other their first, second, or third company off the ground, but also help them scale when they succeed. Which is why you know with with, the, with this with this new fund that Sisu is completing, which is a much bigger fund, we get to do that. We get to not just help them launch, but also help them grow. 
when when they when they do really well. That's great. And Yere, can you tell a bit about like how you got into investing in gaming? Sure. So my background is hardly as illustrious in the gaming industry as Eric's or or Samli's, but I've been in the Finnish startup ecosystem for for quite a while now. First started when I'm back in back when I was a student and I found my own company which still exists on on the side not in gaming though but I also worked for for Slush which is topical I given given the time when we're uh, recording this and handled their among other things handled their gaming related operations and on during that year in in 2019 also worked on this pre-event for, for a large set of game developers and, and investors. And I got to know Sisu through that, but didn't really join back then. But a year later, kind of by coincidence, happened to sort of connect with, with Paul and just kind of the discussion naturally went to the guys kind of starting to raise raise a new fund and needing some some kind of muscle on, on that end to to augment the team. So I joined back then, first a bit part-time, but now more more and more expanding most of my most of my time here. And as said, I don't have a long games industry background, but it's been kind of a passion for for a long time and it's been been great to really get involved through the investing side. I remember you were you were basically like heading the, the last gaming event of Slush before the, the pandemic. Yeah, but uh, yeah. quite an interesting experience because it was uh, my my little solo effort, this kind of mini mini Slush, but but yeah. Yeah, that was awesome event. We need to have that <laughs> come back soon. We can push them to have something similar <laughs> next time. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, before we get into the weeds of investing, maybe Eric, you could educate the audience on what is Sisu Game Ventures, what kind of investments you're doing. I think Sisu is trying to solve a problem for founders, and that is how how do you get something more than just a check these days? Because there's a lot of money floating around in the industry. A lot of people want to get in because they see that you know, the game industry is not only recession-proof, but also pandemic-proof. It's actually growing in, 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 in both of those sort of difficult scenarios. So everybody wants to get in, but not everybody knows how to help. And I think with founders, it's kind of tricky because you'd be like, well, we have all of these other people who are very interested in getting in, and they actually, you know, seem to be very excited about it. They, you know, valuations are going up, and the time to... I'd get an investment done is, is shortening. So what do we do? So I think what, what we're trying to what we're trying to solve is this, you know, starting a company is hard. And building a company, combining the right kind of people, getting it all right is really, really difficult. So it would be awesome to have a group of, of, of people, partners that got your back, that are what we call founder friendly, that will support you. I will uh, give you everything that, that you want from a partner, but not necessarily force it down your throat. Because what we see in a lot of traditional VC funds is that not only do they not know how to operate studios and they don't have any experience, so they can't really add a lot of value on small and big problems in that arena. But at the same time, they want a board seat. So they want to basically control at the top level of how you build your company but can't really add a lot of value when it comes to 
the real meat and the, the biggest challenges in running a studio. So we feel like we're kind of trying to solve that problem for founders where we normally don't take a board seat. We don't want to exact control over the founders. We just want to be kind of like a buffet of video game studio development experience. Because I think between the, the founders of Sisu, we have like close to like a hundred years of experience in running studios if we add it all up with all the people involved. So we're kind of looking at a very different way, kind of more like a support functions. We're game developers with money that can help other founders build their dream studio. So I think it, in a lot of ways, our approach to investing is pretty unique in the space, I think. And maybe I could add a few things to, to that. On the detail level, so we invest primarily in the pre-seed and seed stage. We like to be first money in, if at all possible. And at the moment, from the new fund, we're doing checks of anywhere between 100K up to up to $2 million. And one thing that Eric didn't mention that is a bit, perhaps not entirely unique, but mostly unique, is that we also incubate studios. And we've so far incubated eight studios during the eight years that CSU has, has existed. And in those cases, we've kind of sometimes helped find the almost the entire founding team, kind of refine the strategy that the company is taking on the early stage and then help them find the right types of investors and the kind of right type of combination of, of investors, because we've also worked with basically everyone in the industry. So can kind of have a good view into which type of investors work in whatever way and which type of combination of investors will also be the best for any any given company. That's actually a really good segue to, to asking you, Jere, since you, you recently jumped on board Sisu, what have been the biggest learnings for you in the in the journey in VC now when you've seen this like early stage funding in action from that other side of the table? First off, I would have expected some more kind of finance experience to be relevant, but it's hardly relevant at all in in the pre-seed stage that we're we're looking at. But at the same time, I guess this is also a learning that I got from from Slosh is that things in, in startups tend to kind of mature quite quite slowly, sometimes a bit more quickly. But it really makes sense to be as helpful as as possible to to everyone because you don't know what they'll end up or where, where they'll end up in, in a few years. And in terms of, of, of the game industry, it's been interesting to kind of see how, and this pertains, I think, a lot to CSU's approach, is that how much the kind of relationship with, with founders and the kind of trust that we can build with them, them matters in the end, and how that is the kind of crux of, of everything we do. At the same time, obviously, one of the things I've learned is that if people think that uh, raising money for uh, a startup is a journey, then uh, raising money for a VC fund is is even more so. And at the same time, it's great to see when when you talk to founders, and I've, I've seen this firsthand, is that people are very passionate about what they do, especially in, in games. I mean, through Slush and other avenues I've been involved with, other types of startups as well. And, and to me, it's just great to see in in games that people have such a kind of uh, drive toward just like making great experiences and enjoying the, those experiences them, themselves as well. Nice. Then thinking about the, the whole topic of 
having that experience from gaming like eric you have like several other people in the in the CISO team have that experience how do you think that your career in gaming has prepared you for this career in venture capital to invest in these games companies you know it's interesting that my impression of, of starting my VC career, I thought it would be very different. And the more I realize how similar it is, which is crazy, I thought it would be very, very different. But in fact, we are, you know, writing a deck, talking to LPs, pitching our ideas and trying to get them excited about what it is that we're doing, which is very similar to what we used to do when we were writing a deck and talking to investors and trying to get them to invest in a company. So a lot of the, a lot of the things that we loved about starting new companies is very, very similar, similar in, in ways that we're, that we're starting this next fund. And in a lot of ways, when we talk to founders about their dreams, you know, starting a company is like an amazing feeling. You just feel great and scared at the same time. And then you can multiply that by, you know, 60 plus portfolio companies that CISO have invested in over the years. And then you kind of get a feeling how we feel because we get to partake in that exciting journey of, of starting a new company. And I think almost every single one of every company that I've ever been involved in that turned out great had at least one near-death experience or multiple in some cases. And getting you through that experience, sort of that valley of death where you're just trying to, to get, off the, get off the ground and scraping the tree drops as, you, as, you, as you're taking off is such a bonding experience for the founding team, for everybody in the company, but also for the investors. So. In a, in a lot of ways, it feels like the, all the best parts of my previous experience in working with great people, helping them achieve something that is really awesome, something that they're passionate about. And whether that is a game team, if you're running a company, or whether it's a, a startup where you are the investor, it feels very similar, which is great. I mean, it... it it gets to be, if you could distill out all the best parts of your dream job and multiply it by the number of portfolio companies that you're, that you're supporting, it really is the dream opportunity in my experience. And so far, it's just been unbelievable and I absolutely love it. I, I can definitely agree because like my switch to, to doing investor work has been so much fun to be working with a couple of dozen teams and they're, they're all having different problems it's it's super super thrilling to be in that position then another follow-up for you eric what have you been some of the the interesting new things that you've learned once you got into that investing role with sisu it's been interesting to see it from the other side of the table because i've been in situations in the past where i would take the best deal right i've i've raised money from investors and I've taken the deal that was on the table that had the best valuation. And I was thinking that this is, this is the right thing for the company because we're extending our runway. It gives us a better chance at succeeding. We have a few more shots on goal. And the reason 
the VC is upping their offer is that they must believe in what we're doing. But what I found was when I was when I was on the other side of the table and investing in companies, I've seen people being smarter than I was, where they're saying, look, we have we have other offers, but we care more about being aligned um, with our investor, that we all believe in the same thing. And that even if like we've had we've had founders come to us and say, look, your your offer is not the best at Sisu, but we want to work with you anyway, because we think that there are so many other things that we agree on compared to what we kind of get to feel for for other offers. It's more, hey, you know, it's if if we if we bring these other investors in, it's going to be great for the next round because it's a, it's a high profile VC and they bring that level of enthusiasm for the next tier up of VCs that will see that, oh, you know, this VC is in. So that's sort of a stamp of approval. But instead I've seen founders be really smart about making sure that their VC or their investor, their partner believe what they believe. And I think that ultimately is the biggest thing because like I said before, and like you alluded to as well, all companies will run into problems. They will have their really, really difficult periods. They may have to pivot their game or the game that they originally wanted to make turns out that when they do some early testing, which they should do, they realize that that actually doesn't have that kind of market traction that they were looking for in the first place. And if you have an investor that was basically like, hey, we like that game. We like that idea. That's why we invested you in, in the first place. While at CISU, we're more like, well, we invested in you guys. If you guys feel that this is the right thing to do, then we are with you. It's not important to us that you decided to like go down that path of that particular game or that particular platform or that particular business model. I think for, for a lot of investors, it would be, it would be really difficult to accept if someone says, hey, we're doing free-to-play mobile, they invest in the company and they're going, hey, by the way, we see this really interesting opportunity in VR and premium. I think a lot of uh, VC funds would have a heart attack that happened, right? But we kind of look at it differently and we go, well, yeah, if, if you want to make games for refrigerator screen, you know, go for it. If this is something, if you feel that this is incredibly, incredible opportunity, we will support you. We will help you. We will, we will learn everything we can about refrigerator door gaming. Right. And I think that's kind of the, the biggest learning experience that I had was that from past experience, I made some, some pretty major mistakes in terms of how I chose my partners and ended up not having as as much fun as I thought I would. Like just going a bit deeper in the, into this topic of learning, investing, like what do you feel are certain areas where you're picking up more stuff now than you used, you used to when you were in, in the studios? I think when you're running a studio or if you're running a team, you, you are in problem solving mode. You are, you have shiny object syndrome where everything, every light that blinks <laughs> starts blinking. You're throwing yourself after it and you're trying to solve it as quickly as possible because you want to unblock your team. 
You want to make sure that they have all the resources that they need and that they are unblocked and that they are running at optimal maximum speed. But when you're in investment mode, you kind of spend a lot more time uh, looking at the bigger picture. You spend more time thinking about trends. You actually get kind of interested in peripheral things that are happening because it could be potentially something huge down the road. And then you kind of notice, I think, more intimately how things are moving very quickly. Like when you're running a company, you tend to focus on the next six months. You know, whenever I was either in a CEO position or, or studio director, or whatever, I always tried to live six months into the future so that I could try and solve problems before they would get to the team or to the company. But now I feel like I'm more living like 12 to 18 months into the future, trying to figure out how can we help awesome teams do things that is just a blip at the moment. Because by the time a trend or a huge change in our industry gets to the level where everybody's talking about it, you've already missed out on a lot of opportunities. So I think that kind of mindset has changed. But the idea of living in the future has not. It's just, it's just the the times the scale has been extended, so to speak, I think. Yeah, that's so true. So true. To you guys, like when you are evaluating a game studio to invest in, what kind of patterns, characteristics do you look for to, to you know, give that positive signal to actually invest? Maybe, Yara, you can elaborate first on this bit. Yeah, sure. So I guess one thing we have to start from is that we don't, Due to investing in pre-seed, obviously, we don't care that much about, about metrics. Obviously, we understand that they're relevant and it's great that companies have metrics. But for us, metrics are more, and Eric, feel free to add to this, but to us, they seem more like a proxy in a sense that they exemplify the level of understanding that the founding team kind of has about their, their project and how have they tested so far and what is their kind of approach? How well do they kind of understand the, the audience they're, they're looking at? And obviously that, those types of things are more of an indication of, of the ability of, of the founders and their, their early team. And, and secondly, we are looking for serial entrepreneurs or people we think could be serial entrepreneurs in, in the game space. And for the most part, we're not working with a lot of very early stage, well, not early stage, but founders who, without a lot of experience in either games or in entrepreneurship. And a lot of things can obviously be compensated for with very kind of novel and aspirational ideas. And one of the things, aside from these kind of ways for companies to look at new audiences and and really kind of find these underserved sections of the market that's that's great from the novelty perspective but one of the things we're also looking at more and more is the kind of company culture and is that also aspirational in in some way are they approaching growing the company in in some different way are they approaching hierarchy in the company in a, in an interesting way in a, in order to kind of facilitate like their creative process or actually 
retain talent much much better. So those are kind of some of the the things that we we look for. Obviously, I can go into into more detail, but if, if Eric would like to add something in the middle here. Yeah, I think all of those things are important. But to me, the absolute most important thing is balance. I want to see balance on the founder team. I want to see a mix of creative and business. I want to see a mix of, you know, art, art and, and technology. I want, I want to see that balance there because there are so many studios. Like if you're, if you're, a programmer and you want to start a company, you feel very comfortable recruiting other programmers. And therefore you kind of get tech heavy in your co-founding team. Or if you're, if you're a, a, a sort of a creative director background and you want to start your own company, you tend to go design heavy. You bring a lot of people in that kind of share your uh, passion for design, how that's really important. So very often we will see a company founding team be heavy in one or the other direction. We, we see sometimes teams that are like, hey, I was a monetization expert and I have a bunch of spreadsheet people that know, know how to squeeze every drop of blood out of any game, right? And we'd be like, yeah, that's great. What if you had also an awesome creative person on your, on your team and, and what if you had like what what are some of the key issues that you're going to have to solve on the technical side how do we make sure that when you when you put your co-founding team together that you hit the ground running because i see a lot of teams that struggle early on is that even if they get funding if they don't have a good balance if they don't have a good dialogue internally where all of the important aspects of a successful company are present and have a voice and have a meaningful voice, not just, not just as employees. It's very important to, to listen to your employees as well. But there is a, you know, in the, in the, in the founding team, you want to make sure that you have incredible balance. Now, that being said, more often than not, CISA will invest in people we know. And I know that for, for a lot of founders, that sounds kind of disappointing if they don't know us, <laughs> if they want to work with us and they don't know us, that's, yeah. that's like, oh no, this is what you, you can fix it by getting to know you. I think like <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I was thinking about it in, in 30 years of being in this industry, I think I counted here the other day that I've hired just over a thousand people. So, and, and it is kind of a small industry and Samuel has been involved with a lot of different people Paul as well. We know a lot of people in the industry. So if you're not like a direct connection with us, there's always people around us that you would know that, that you know that we trust because we've either invested in them or worked shoulder to shoulder with them on some really hard projects. So we, we kind of have to use our network as our number one investment thesis because we're going in so early. So if we, have an, if we have people we trust that we worked with in the past and they want to bring in other people and we're suggesting other people that they could bring in so that they have that awesome balance, we can make a deal very quickly. Like we would even, we would even be like, hey, let's put a deck together so that we have sort of all the components and we're all agreeing that, hey, this is kind of the vision for the company and we'll just write a check 
right there and then and get the thing started, get it off the ground. Because that first money in is the, the hardest thing to do because for a lot of founders and for a lot of people who want to be founders, they're just awesome game developers. And they're like, hey, this company that I've been working for for a while now, we could do better. Like if I was in charge, I would be more transparent with my employees. If I was in charge, I wouldn't hire, you know, this kind of personalities because they don't mesh with, with the kind of company that I would build. And we're saying like, yeah, let, let's, let's do that. Like sometimes we've been mentoring people that we know are a little bit too early. They're not quite ready yet to start their own company, but we think they, they have it in them. We keep guiding them and mentoring them and telling them that, you know, this is something you could do, or this, some of the steps you could take. And Hey, it's actually, I know it sounds scary, but it's very doable. And in some cases, we've been pushing people, like like literally pushing people out the window and say, look, we will help you get the money, put your team together, and we will help you launch your company. And 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 they and afterwards they come back and they go, I'm so thankful that you that you were so persistent and getting us to do this because this is the best thing ever. So I think that you know everything is important. You want you want as an investor, most investors are in the risk reduction business. It's, it's a team that have started multiple companies and they've been successful. Great. Check. They've, they have a really strong group of people and well-experienced, uh, great balance. They have a product. The product already has traction. It looks like all they need is money to scale. I mean, anyone can invest in a company like that. But because we don't necessarily think that that's the right way to go for us, because if that was the only way you could raise money, it would be very few game studios in our industry because very few have anything to show for a while, especially at the very, very early stages. So we think that this is the way that we can consistently find teams that love working together and even if they get it wrong in the beginning, if they have the right composition of team and personalities and people that are willing to like, look at their thesis and change it if it needs to be, if it's not working out right, be flexible, awesome teams will find a way to fix a broken idea while mediocre teams can take an awesome idea and mess it up. Maybe to quickly add to that, I mean, we're, and, and it, it is a cliche to say that you want to build those relationships with, with potential partners, investors, or, or whatever before you, before you need them. And it's good to see founders that kind of look into the future about what kind of uh, relationships they might need. And if they're, let's say, founding their studio within, within six months, they don't need to wait until they, they have something. You can just reach out to us and get that conversation started. And I guess finally, one thing to add is that we, the, one of the things that we look for is also in, in the name, because we look for people with, with Sisu and Sisu is this kind of Finnish, I don't know if you've discussed it in any of your podcasts, but the Finnish concept of this, even grit and perseverance that sometimes approaches insanity in a way that you just don't quit despite everyone kind of telling you that, you should, or despite any kind of potential roadblock. And that is also the kind of quality that we look for for in founders, because as, as Eric said, 
every company is going to come across this near-death experience at some point. And, and great companies are just separated by how how they can actually use that as an opportunity to really refine their approach and come out of that issue much, much stronger. So CISU is definitely something we look for in, in every entrepreneur we we support. And generally, we think that is the kind of foundational building block of, of being an entrepreneur in the first place. Excellent stuff. Yeah, totally agree. So once you've invested, how do you help these companies? Because I'm I'm sort of hearing that this sounds a bit like it's a bit of an incubation as well. But how do you scale to actually do that when you have a portfolio of, you know, 20, 30 companies at some point? How, how does it work? Because we act more like a buffet than a cafeteria menu. We don't uh, get hands-on with every company unless they desperately want us to, right? So we're saying, look, we are here. If you need us, let us know. If you're not sure, if you need help and you're a little bit unsure about you know some decisions to make just just let us know and we will let you know if if we think that we can help in any way so that's one part of it is that we're not actively trying to run the studios for the founders we're just saying we have been through a lot of the same challenges that you will be going through over the next couple of years so if you want to reach out, if you want help, if you need anything at all, we will try and, and give you whatever advice that we can give you. So that's that's one part of it, is, it, is that we're not cookie cutter, uh, cookie cutter approach to every company that we invest in needs to be a sort of a, an incubation model, anything like that. Very often, we just help out making sure that the team is balanced as they as they get off the ground. And then most of the time, they're just you know, they're just running their company and they're, they're letting us know how they're doing and, and feeling excited about what, what they've been able to achieve. But in addition, part of the scaling that makes it possible is that if there were a lot of our startups that needed a lot of help, we, we feel like with, within the CISU family, there are so many companies that are collaborating and sharing information in between themselves. So since we're talking to a lot of the studios pretty often, we can just say, hey, by the way, thanks for reaching out. This particular problem that you're mentioning, one of our portfolio companies just solved this exact problem two weeks ago. And they're perfectly willing and able to jump on a call and walk you through what they did. And you can take a look at that and see, does that fit what you would like to do? And if it doesn't, then... I can reach out to uh, the rest of our portfolio companies and ask if anybody else is, has, has, a, has an awesome solution for this kind of problem. And because there's been so much collaboration over the years, everybody, I think, feels that it's worth spending some time helping others because you're, you know that right around the corner could be another you know, unexpected problem that you would need help with. So... We've, we've found that there's a lot of willingness and support within the CISU family of portfolio companies to help each other. And we're sort of just like human routers. And if, if, we, if, if it's a problem that we feel that we're not you know, capable or not up to speed as much as some of the other portfolio companies are, because they, you know, we're, we're not operating studios these days like, like they are, and, they're, and the industry is changing continuously. 
So if it's more fundamental things like team dynamics or, hey, we, you know, company cult or organizational problems, we can always help with those things. But if it's more, hey, this is what, you know, this is, you know, blockchain is blowing up and we need to find a way to help the, the team figure out the best way to do it, who should we talk to? And we'd be like, oh, you should talk to these guys. They just announced that they're already doing it and they have a really cool solution for it. They can help you out. So that's kind of how we are able to scale and help that many companies at once. Yeah, makes total sense. Hey, I, I wanted to actually go into that blockchain blowing up stuff. <laughs> now, how are you guys evaluating all this blockchain thing that's happening? All the startups are that are getting into Web3 gaming. It's such a new field. Things are constantly changing there. What are your thoughts? Well, I could, I could start out here. So we've been... I wouldn't say that we've been careful, but we haven't really kind of plunged in to the space as, as many other investors have. We do have one investment that sort of more, more or less pivoted in, into the space, that being, being Coreloop, which just raised its Series A. But in, in general, we feel that it's, it's so early that most of the teams really don't kind of fulfill our criteria for that games game development experience and, and a focus on like developing fundamentally strong meta games and and like core gameplay experiences so that's kind of why we've been a bit bit careful but in general we're looking for those companies that really combine that native blockchain experience with uh game development experience. And I suppose every DC is looking for those gold nuggets at the, at the moment. So for us, it's very important that the, the fundamentals behind the game itself are, are strong before we really dig into the, the tokenomics or, or anything like that. You know, does, does Eric want to chip in before I add, add a few more details? Yeah, just quickly, I, I think that it, it, it ties back to our core, which is the, a, a balanced co-founding team. So if you want to dominate in that space, you need to have both and they need to be uh, balanced. They need to be equally important to you because we do see a lot of companies coming to us that are, that are crypto leaning teams without game development experience. And then we see game uh, studios or game startups doing the same without bringing in that that crypto knowledge, right? I think we saw it with free to play. A lot of teams were like, "Well, these you know f- these free to play games aren't really even games. They're just like mind numbing grinding activities." And somehow people are like willing to invest money for the pain to be less to speed things up, and it doesn't make any sense, but when we started actually making free-to-play native games from the ground up, we saw a huge explosion in how successful they could be. And I think we saw the same thing when we started making mobile games in the first place, because we were used to PSP and Game Boy games. So we were making basically clones of what used to work on a, on a, on a portable game device and sold it at a premium price on a phone. And and that was fine in the beginning. There was some growth just because people wanted those phones for a lot of reasons. But it wasn't really until we were starting to make native mobile designed games that that really started taking off. So we're, we're kind of looking at it as a very normal transition that until 
you find that that good balance between the two, there aren't going to be anyone that really takes advantage of the platform. That's something that we've seen in cloud gaming as well, where just because you have the cloud streaming technology and you're just releasing PC and console games and repurposing them for distribution on, on, in the cloud doesn't make those games better because they're in the cloud. That's why when we invested in a couple of companies in, in, in Massive and in Mainframe and in Return Entertainment, there were companies that wanted to build games from the ground up that were awesome in the cloud and couldn't be played, couldn't be made on a, on a device in the living room. It wouldn't work. That's how they designed the game from the ground up. And that's why we're so excited about what those companies are able to do. And it's kind of our same, same approach that we have for, for crypto gaming. Yeah, and it's going to be kind of interesting to see how the kind of whole fact of liquidity and economic incentives kind of create new new game mechanics or or social dynamics. For example, like in let's say you have an MMO, it is wildly different when you have real economic incentive behind the kind of cooperation and, and conflict you might see between groups or guilds in, in the game. Like when you don't have these economic incentives, these uh, conflicts might might not be as uh, as bloody, <laughs> uh, or you might not be as as involved uh, kind of emotionally in those games in, in comparison to when you have like real economic incentives underlying the behavior of, of the groups in in the game. Yeah, I think like it's super interesting to see all of this blockchain gaming happening, but also looking at the the really experienced game teams how they do well against the people who are more coming from outside of gaming who have the, the blockchain experience for like five ten years and to see like which one makes better games yeah i guess this is a difficult difficult one because at the moment to me it seems like the blockchain native teams have clearly done better than those teams that have don't really have that level of experience in, in crypto but it's interesting to see how that that changes and obviously it's it's kind of for us it's interesting to also look at the kind of tokenomic side of things because the incentive structures around for example the token release schedule for for a game that is has its own token is obviously important because if if let's say you release 50% of the tokens you've sold in the private sale after three months in the game, then you might have a widely unstable economy. So you have like these interesting details that you have to consider that wouldn't be in any way relevant to any free-to-play game or, or anything of, of the sort. Yeah, totally. I would, be, I would add yeah. to that purely from an investor point of view, like a, from the technicality of investing from a fund into a company, with uh, a private sale of tokens, it can be incredibly fast and simple, right? We've invested in a lot of countries where they won't accept a DocuSign document. It needs to be an actual original piece of document that needs to be signed. It needs to be a blue ink and it needs to be sent via courier and oh, by the way, we changed some terms and now we need to like do the whole thing again. And everybody who, people needs to be there in person to sign. There's like some crazy, crazy requirements 
in, in a lot of different uh, countries where we invest. So just the opportunity of doing something that is much easier, much faster, is also very, very exciting, right? So there are a lot of, a lot of layers to the onion here that is, is making this whole thing inevitable. Like at some point, we will be looking back and saying, I can't believe people were investing by buying shares in a, in a company and the process that it needed to take to do that. That was just so crazy. Like people driving their own car kind of thing. There's the, the convenience and or, or everything, the experience of like going forward, like for, for things that really should be easier to be done, safer, whatnot. So yeah, totally agree no. there. So guys... I have some final question for you. What's your favorite book? Jere, you go first. I, I guess this is difficult to answer. So I, I, I'll actually answer this, this question twice. My, my first one would actually be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which kind of has been fundamental for me, like one more, more of a personal level. And I, I recommend everyone read that book. It, it is harrowing, but at the same time, quite inspiring and has to do with his experiences in uh, Second World War and, and especially on, on in Auschwitz, for example, where he was a prisoner. But maybe on, on the business side of things, I really like a book called Range, How, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. Very interesting book about how, how you should kind of cultivate a generalist mentality aside from merely specializing. And I think really applies to looking at early stage game teams as, as well because in a in a four person team it is difficult for you to just say that I'm I'm the art guy and I do nothing nothing else so it's great to look at founders who are also kind of generalists from from that perspective I, I really also recommend everyone read that book Eric I have a couple of books that I would recommend that I love the first my first love when it when it came to a book about building companies is uh, Built to Last um, by Jim Collins. And it kind of shows my age, right? Because it's an old book. But a lot of the things that they discussed there, I think are still, still true. But then I think after, like in the last, last few years, I think I loved Zero to One um, from Peter Thiel. It was an amazing book. And also a Creativity Inc. from Capmo, the president of Pixar. It's also a very interesting book because it kind of mixes the startup concept from Peter Thiel with the whole concept of doing something in an organization that has to be creative and artistic. So if I if I could com combine two books, it'd probably be those two, but with some of the built to last fundamentals still being true i think that would be my soup my book soup well, those five books that you guys mentioned are some of my favorites we, we should do a book club maybe so. hey do you, do you guys have stories that have shaped you and how you approach your work today eric do you have a, a story to share you know i feel like i was incredibly lucky at the very beginning of my career that when i started funcom which was like in 89 90 There were really no other game studios per se in the Nordics. There were very, very few. And I just basically tapped into the demo scene of a bunch of incredibly talented, very passionate people that helped build 
Funcom in the early days. And it was, you know, the fastest growing technology company in Norwegian history at that point. But I was making every mistake in the book. Like I was micromanaging. I was running all over the place, trying to grow a company way too fast. Had awesome people, but didn't trust them to do the work that, you know, that they could do. And I turned myself into this huge bottleneck for the company. And, you know, I feel, I feel really sorry for my team that they had to endure, go through this, like 150 people with a CEO that was 22 and had absolutely no idea what he was doing. Was very sad for, for, for everybody, you know, and I, I feel like it, it gave me a lot of opportunities later in my career. And I, I've ever since I've been trying to give back in terms of, hey, you know what? I tried what you're doing right now and it completely backfired. Or, hey, this thing that this journey that you're on and this path you're taking, I, I did the same and it completely blew up in my face. And this is what happened. And this is, this is how I tried to do it differently later on, which worked better. And just tried to share anything that, that I have sort of messed up over the years. And un unfortunately, I do have to admit that I've sometimes messed it up multiple times, which is what you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to, it's perfectly fine to make a mistake as, lo as long as you learn from it. Right. But I'm also in that club of people that have done the same mistake uh, uh, more than once. But in the end, I think you can just, you know, the, the best the best story I can tell is just like, just keep on trying. If you if you care deeply about making games and you care deeply about people in this awesome industry, just keep trying, keep doing things, keep trying to add value wherever you can. Be open and honest about what you don't know and the mistakes that you have made and that you are about to make and ask for help. Ask for people to give you any kind of advice. Obviously, you need to take that for what it is. It can't be uh, a perfect ingredient that will work anywhere and everywhere, you still have to take that advice and distill it down and ask yourself, is this going to work? Is this the thing that I'm missing? Is this what I need? But I think that it kind of helped me through the rest of my career make all of those mistakes in the beginning. It's a little bit like going to startup school when there was none. And then I had to sort of terrorize and torture my team in the process of learning everything that I needed to learn. So that's, I guess that's the story. Yeah, that's a good one. Yara, do you have something to share? Well, I, I guess I, I still have a lot of mistakes to, to make and will still make a lot of them. But I guess like things that have been formative for me, it's, it doesn't maybe relate to any specific story or, or something that has happened but for example with working with with slush which is a very unique sort of environment you can very quickly learn the the value of just kind of trying to be as as useful and, and helpful to everyone you meet because as I said it's kind of the level of serendipity you can kind of come across when you just work with someone like a few years ago and left like a positive impression because you were willing to just take a few extra minutes to do something for them 
I, I think that's kind of a mentality that's useful everywhere and, and something that I think the experience at that at slush really really kind of hammered hammered home. At the same time, that kind of environment is very driven by this, what I would sometimes even call this hubris in a way that you just kind of believe that you have the ability to do to do anything and and that's kind of exemplified by by the culture and how everyone interacts. And perhaps there were times when I was too stressed and maybe not really able to live up to that mentality. And I suppose through some comments and experiences there, just a good learning experience that you really like, despite you not offloading your stress or your negative feelings on, on people, it's just uh, small things about how you act and how you present yourself in, in moments of, of stress really can have a huge effect on, on the team and how, how well they're able to react in, in negative situations. So I had a few few issues there when I couldn't kind of live up to that. And I think I learned a lot from, from that experience and can kind of provide more, more positivity nowadays than I, than I used to. But I have a lot to learn on, on that end as well. Man, the slush culture is so interesting and so big for Finland in the future. <laughs> like, so happy it's happening in this country. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have one other short story if you want it. Yes, I do. So back in the day, long time ago in the in the 90s, we built a prototype of a game on the Nintendo 64, which was this racing game. We went to Nintendo of America and pitched it to them and they said, no, thank you. But apparently they had left, the cartridge was still in the N64 in that meeting room because they asked if they could like just keep playing it. And then Miyamoto was coming for another meeting and that developer that was supposed to meet with him was late, which happened a lot, obviously, at these shows. And he started playing this game that was in the car in the, in the N64. And he's like, wow, this is really cool. Like, we should we should sign these guys up. So I was I was I had left Nintendo and I was kind of upset because I thought that it was actually a really cool game that fit Nintendo. And then it got a like frantic calls from Nintendo of America saying, Miyamoto played the game. He loves it. You need to come back. So he <laughs> came back and then and, and he, he loved it. And we ended up signing a deal with Nintendo. And then in, I remember one of the meetings, we, we flew to Kyoto in Japan and we had a meeting uh, where, we were, where we were talking about the game. And then we had a, a lunch break. And I remember asking Miyamoto through an interpreter, I said, what is the most important thing for you when you design a new game? And Miyamoto said, he said, Eriksan, through the interpreter, he said, you know, the most important thing is to sell hardware. And I was like, I was devastated by that answer because I thought that was such a cynical answer. And I, he's, he's Miyamoto and I loved all of his games and growing up on, on these magical worlds that he had created. And it felt like they were so full of love and inspiration and aspiration. And, and then he's just, that's the reason. And I think he could probably see on my face that I was very, very disappointed with that answer because he said through the interpreter, he said, you know, every time we make a game at Nintendo, we have to think of an experience that will make someone go out and buy a new piece of hardware to play the game on, and then buy the game itself, it needs to be that unique. It needs to be that different. And it needs to express 
its uniqueness and soul in like 30 seconds because back then obviously everyone were doing you know tv commercials that was the only way that you could like really get your message across of what your game was about or in one screenshot if you were doing a magazine uh, marketing campaign so he said that you know we need to think about that every single time we make a new game because we need people to make a huge leap of faith in us because they have to go out and buy a complete new platform and the game itself to sort of be attracted into our ecosystem and our our world. So then I thought, you know, that makes a lot more sense because in a way, I think every new game should have kind of something like that in it when it's created. It shouldn't be a hey, this is a, a, a clone of this other game with, with a, a different theme. Or I think it should be like, you need to think about what kind of experience do you want for the players and how can you make it so interesting, so unique, so different, so new that someone would be willing to really make an effort to play your game. And I think that's where a lot of the magic from Nintendo's games come from. Awesome. Really good one. Hey. To finish this really good discussion, and I, I wanted to to sort of help the founders who are out there who are looking for funding at the early stage. What's the best way to get for them to get in contact with you guys? LinkedIn is cool. I I usually accept most invitations on LinkedIn if if it looks like people are at least if they can put like a little bit of a blurb on what it is that they want to do just like a one or a couple of sentences of description of what they're up to. And I found that the, if, if someone who wants to start a new company can clearly express the, either the problem they want to solve or the uniqueness about their company or the game that the first game that they want to build, if you can, if you can distill that into a very short description, it's usually a very good indication that the team at least know where to go. If it's a 500 word blurb on everything and anything that they want to do and, and the game industry and stuff like that, that's not, that's not good. But just a very clear and concise, hey, we're doing this and we think that's awesome. Then I think that would, that would help. You can also reach us through the website, email eric at sisu.vc. So a lot, a lot of different ways to get a hold of us, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be hard if you can do a Google search, you should be able to find it. Yeah, pretty much. I'm also can be reached on, on Twitter and, and LinkedIn DMs, especially. We try to look at every, every pitch we, we get, but can't always get a promise that we'll be able to come back to you at least immediately. But yeah, those and Jere at sisu.bc would be, I think, the, the best ways to get in touch. Guys, this was so good. One of the best episodes for sure that I've recorded recently. Really good to chat with you. And I hope to see you guys out there soon at some of the events. Thanks. It's great, great, great of you to say. I love your content. I know that it's supposed to be for founders and how to get your company started, but I read almost everything you put out all the time. So it's great. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey, take care. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. 
And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time guys, bye bye!